Hello, and welcome to Line One, Your Health Connection. I'm your host, Dr. Jillian Woodruff. Today, we're diving deep into menopause, hot flashes, night sweats, short-term memory loss, mental fogginess, anxiety, low libido, intimate pain, urine leakage, insomnia. These are just some of the signs of decreasing hormone levels and menopause. Since the landmark Women's Hormone Study of 2002, even some medical doctors are intimidated by the prescription hormones used to balance levels and resolve these symptoms. Many symptoms go unrecognized as symptoms of menopause and thus unaddressed. Today, we'll dive deep into the practices of hormone optimization during menopause. We'll learn how hormone optimization can increase the quality of life for many and how providers and patients should discuss the benefits and the risks of therapy and choose when hormone optimization is the best option. Joining us today is Mr. Steve Goldring, known as the Hormone Pharmacist. He is a licensed compounding pharmacist who specializes in hormone education for both women and men via his online platform, Simple Hormones. Steve, are you with us? Welcome. Can you hear me now? Well, you can also join our conversation. Do you have questions about menopause or hormone replacement therapy? Are you experiencing symptoms of hormone decline? Have you been told that hormones aren't safe for you? Call us toll-free statewide at 1-888-353-5752, one Five seven five two in Anchorage at nine zero seven five five zero eight four three three nine zero seven five five zero eight four three three or email us at line one at alaskapublic.org. Enter your meeting ID Steve, followed by pound. Your trademark, simple hormones, is very intriguing. And at first, I thought it was a bit of a misnomer because the functionality of hormones is complex and not always so simple to explain. But you have a true gift in making the complex seem simple. Tell us how you went from working as a pharmacist to deciding to further your education in advanced hormone replacement therapy. Mr. Steve? Can you hear me now? Yes, I can. Okay, good. Great. We're having a a little bit of a technical time getting into uh, the audio, but if you can hear me, then we should be able to get started. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Jillian. I am so excited about today because I will say, you know, I'm a lover, of course, of women's health and hormones, and and I'm a huge fan of yours. So I'm so grateful to you for being here. Thank you so much. I, I, I honestly, I geek out on talking about hormones and women's health and menopause, and I have a friend who mocks me for that. But it's that's who I am, and that's okay. We appreciate it. We need to know more about hormones. So, how did this all start? How did you go from being a pharmacist, which of course you know about the pharmacology of, of drugs and medications, to really focusing your time on hormones? Well, uh, so as a compounding pharmacist, uh, probably the primary audience 
for compounding pharmacy is women in menopause. So I've been in compounding pharmacy for over 25 years, and I spent a lot of time counseling, teaching women in menopause about hormones and hormone optimization. And so just over, over time, I just spent so much, uh, so much of my career talking with women about hormones. And I also was involved in learning about hormones and hormone optimization over a period of about 10 years. And it just gradually became a passion of mine. And there, there are some kind of light bulb moments that happened along the way that, that kind of drew me to the place where I am now. Well, absolutely. So the women were really your primary customer, and then you wanted to kind of further serve them. I think that's amazing. And helping patients understand hormones and the fluctuations is quite a difficult task. So tell us more about your education platform. So I have a platform that's called Simple Hormones. It is primarily aimed at physicians. Uh, So I have a number of physicians who subscribe to my program. It is based on uh, digital education courses. So a lot of people are familiar with the idea of digital courses. There's a a platform called Masterclass where people can learn how to cook or do photography or play guitar. Well, I have digital education courses that are specifically about hormones. Um, And I have basically a suite of several of these courses that I sell as a subscription to uh, healthcare providers. And then they, in turn, give those to their patients for free. It, It actually helps the patients to understand more about the hormones they're being treated with, but also helps the provider, the doctor, so that they don't have to spend as much time going over this, uh, you know, rather detailed uh, information about hormones. Yes, absolutely. There really isn't enough time in the office to really dive into hormones. We won't even scratch the surface in this hour. So I think that's wonderful to have that program so people really can understand what hormones are and how they can work or maybe not work for them. Um, Before we really get into hormones, can you maybe define a few terms for us like menopause, postmenopause, perimenopause? I found that many women are unsure of which phase of life they're in. So let us know. What do we need to know about that? Right. So, of course, uh, women at about age 12 go into the childbearing years. Um, And once you start having a period, you're able to have children. And then maybe around the age of 45-ish, there comes a time called perimenopause. Perimenopause is defined as about four to six years before your last menstrual period. Um, now, the, that period can be widely variable, and there's also a hysterectomy where some women have some gynecological problems and they have their, their ovaries and or uterus removed. And so that, that basically draws a line and says your childbearing years are over. But if you take hysterectomy out, menopause is really a day. It is the day on which you've gone an entire year without a menstrual period. And so that would be considered menopause. And then for the rest of your life, after that day, you would be post-menopausal. So a lot of people um, kind of throw the term menopause around, and I do as well. When we talk about menopause, we often mean post-menopausal. 
because that's just a, a dividing line between premenopausal and postmenopausal, the day of menopause. Make sense? Yes, that's very clear, and I think that will answer a lot of questions. And there are different system, symptoms that are associated with each of these, with menopause, slash postmenopause, as well as perimenopause. What are some of the long-term health issues associated with menopausal hormone loss? Well, this is something that a lot of people don't realize. A lot of people just say, well, I'll just go through menopause naturally and, you know, that, that'll be no problem for me. But one of the things that people don't realize is that at menopause, um, you lose a lot of hormones, and that has some major implications for things like osteoporosis and for metabolic disease. And when I say metabolic disease, I mean the majority of things that actually kill women are much, much higher in menopause because of the loss of those hormones than they would be before menopause or in perimenopause. Um, so that would be things like uh, insulin resistance or prediabetes, type 2 diabetes, uh, heart disease, and uh, Alzheimer's disease is actually a metabolic disease because there's a very large component of Alzheimer's that has to do with metabolizing, especially blood glucose. And so that basically, there's a whole raft of different um, disease states that are much, much more common in women in menopause, mainly because they have lost a lot of these hormones. Right. That's very important to understand is that, unfortunately, there are issues that arise from those, from that loss uh, that you're used to having. And so those things need to be addressed, even for women that don't have those overt signs and symptoms of menopause. And unfortunately, the, it's limited. It's limited to receive hormone optimization because providers are hesitant to prescribe hormones based on extrapolations made from data from a very famous hormone study, the Women's Health Initiative, published in 2002. And I was in medical school during that time, and this one study had such a profound impact on my women's health education, and certainly on all the women that have received or didn't receive hormones since that time. So this is a big ask, but can you simplify that hormone study from us and tell us perhaps some of its major flaws? So the Women's Health Initiative, whether you know it or not, has influenced the way everyone thinks about hormones, especially hormones in menopause. Um, the Women's Health Initiative was kind of the culmination of many years of women being treated with hormones, but a lot of uh, researchers didn't really know what the, the ultimate results of those treatments were. It hasn't been studied all that thoroughly. And so... A lot of the, the impetus for the Women's Health Initiative was because in the, the 60s and 70s and 80s, women had been taking Premarin, which is a, a set of estrogens that comes from horses, and, and they had been, uh, the suspicion was that they had less heart disease. And so that was kind of part of the impetus was let's take a look at this hormone replacement and see if it causes less heart disease. Well, there's... There's a lot of uh, political things that went on, a lot of intrigue. The results of the study were never, they, they were published eventually, but not immediately in a peer-reviewed medical journal. 
Instead, they were published in a news release that basically was a little bit sensational, and it emphasized what is what it was called a 26% increase in breast cancer among women taking hormones. Now, if you, if you look closely at the study, you can see that that's based on something that's called a relative risk increase. And so it's, it's a way to look at the numbers that make things look a little bit more dramatic than they actually are. And if you look more closely at the study, what's called the, uh, the absolute increase in breast cancer was something like 0.08%. So a very, very small increase in breast cancer based on the total number of breast cancer cases in the study. Uh, another thing that I like to point out in one of my videos about the Women's Health Initiative is that the Women's Health Initiative, the, the actual report from the researchers themselves mentioned that the, the results, especially in breast cancer, were, in quotes, uh, almost statistically significant, end quote. And what that, what that kind of means, it's a little complicated, but what that means is that they weren't statistically significant, these results. And so they could be the, the result of chance, but that, that doesn't ever come out when we talk about women's health issue. Anyway, I could, I could go on for hours about the WHI, uh, but, but I'll try not to, to go too far into it. Right, so basically with the breast cancer, if you are showing, uh, they're trying to show the, the risk, they didn't actually show that there was a causal relationship because it was not statistically significant. Is that correct? Yes, that's my reading of the Women's Health Initiative. And I, I think one of the issues with the Women's Health Initiative is that a lot of healthcare providers, a lot of doctors take at face value the idea that there was this giant increase in breast cancer in women taking hormones, but they've never actually read the study carefully to see what it actually says. And if you do read the study, it's quite eye-opening that um, you, you can find a lot of information. Here's, here's one piece of information that a lot of people don't recognize from the Women's Health Initiative. And that is that the women in the study did not have menopause symptoms. The right. reason they did not have menopause symptoms is because they were prohibited from being in the study if they had symptoms. And the reason for that is because if they had symptoms and they were taking a placebo, they would have known right away. And so they would have been tipped off as to whether they were taking the hormone or the placebo. And so the, the women in the study were actually 12 years on average past menopause. And that 12 years without hormones, in a lot of people's opinion, could have a significant impact on these women's health. Um, but a lot of people don't really think about that as, uh, you know, it's one of the nuances about the women's health initiative that people don't recognize. Right. Well, were there any conclusions to the study that changed our hormone practice in a beneficial way? Uh, that's a good question. I, I think probably it, it was a good thing to take a closer look at the evidence. The, the difficulty is that we we kind of haven't necessarily, because of the, the maybe um, sensational way the results of the Women's Health Initiative were, were kind of put out, they came out in the, the lay media and the newspapers and all that kind of thing. 
rather than through a peer-reviewed journal. And because of that, we haven't really looked at it with a close eye, which is what I believe we should do, and which is I always recommend to providers to really look closely and read for yourself the Women's Health Initiative Report, and you'll, you'll understand a little bit better. But I do think in answering your question that it has helped us in general to look more uh, maybe skeptically at this kind of idea that, uh, oh, hormones are going to improve patient uh, cardiac risk. And we need to look closely at that. That may be true. It may not be true. But we need to look closely at the evidence in clinical trials. And I will say that the Women's Health Initiative is probably the largest clinical trial, randomized trial, that's ever been conducted. It may be the largest that ever will be conducted because it was absolutely gigantic and cost billions of dollars. So it, it actually kind of set the standard in some ways for randomized clinical trials because it's so big and comprehensive. One thing you didn't mention, Steve, you mentioned half of it, but the medications that were studied, perhaps that's something we gained, not using the medications that were studied um, at that time. So you mentioned that they used uh, the hormones from horses, but you didn't say exactly where that came from. Do you want to tell us about that? Right. So that's kind of the gold standard at the time in 2002, or the study started in around 1999. But at the time, the gold standard treatment for menopause was something called Premarin, which stands for pregnant mare's urine. This is a combination of many different hormones that comes from what I would consider to be a natural source. It is the urine of horses. And I've actually just made a video in the last few days about how I know that Premarin is a natural hormone. I've actually taken a Premarin tablet, cut it in half, and sniffed it. And it smells like horse pee. It is a completely natural product, but it contains uh, numerous, some people say 10, some people say 17, some reports say as many as 60 different estrogens the vast majority of which are not found in humans. They're only found in horses. There are also a, a lot of other contaminants in that uh, estrogen product that make it kind of, in my opinion, a dirty drug. So we don't even know what all is in Premarin. Now, in addition to Premarin, uh, a large majority of the patients were also given a drug called medroxyprogesterone, which sounds like progesterone, but it's a chemically altered version of progesterone that's slightly different and has substantially different behavior. Interesting. Yes, exactly. So this brings me to my next question for you. I want to talk about bioidentical hormones versus synthetic hormones versus natural hormones. And I think that some of these terms aren't used correctly when we're talking about hormones or other medications. Can you tell us a bit, what? how do you distinguish between something being bioidentical and synthetic when considering hormone replacement and natural? So that's, that's an interesting uh, contrast. It's something that I just recently made a video and put on my YouTube channel about. Um, in my experience, I would say everyone uses those terms imprecisely. And by everyone, I mean most of the doctors that I work with talk about uh, synthetic 
versus bioidentical as if that were the contrast. The problem is there's a lot of overlap between both synthetic and bioidentical uh, hormones. Now, when we use the word synthetic, that term means uh, a chemical or a uh, something that is produced through chemical synthesis. It's a chemical process where one chemical is changed into another chemical. Now, when we use the word bioidentical, what we're talking about is a hormone that is exactly the same chemical structure as the hormones made by the human, not horse, but the human body. Now, I would contend, and a lot of people will be very confused by this, so bear with me, but I would contend that all of the hormones that we take that we call bioidentical are also synthetic. They have been created through a, a chemical synthesis process. And I'm gonna do a video about that. Uh, I'm gonna do it probably tomorrow. Um, in the next few days, I'll release that video. But essentially, all of the hormones that we call bioidentical, they are chemically the same structure as the hormones that come from our bodies. So for example, testosterone in men, estradiol in women, progesterone in women. We use those in what's called a bioidentical form but every single one of those is created using a chemical synthesis process. So they are both bioidentical and synthetic at the same time. None of those are considered natural because they're not something that we pulled out of nature. Now, Premarin that comes from horse pee is natural, but it's not bioidentical. Uh, it, it creates a little bit of confusion, but um, the, the precise way to use those terms is to understand synthetic chemical processes that create bioidentical hormones. Make sense? Yes, absolutely. What about progesterone and the use of micronized progesterone? Is there a natural version of progesterone or a bioidentical well, version? Um, so there is a bioidentical version of progesterone, and it's often referred to as micronized oral progesterone. Now, the term micronized is from the pharmaceutical world that I used to be, be very much entrenched in. I've, I've kind of backed away from that now in, in patient education. But the term micronized has to do with the size of the particles in the powdered progesterone. So uh, they're basically measured through a sieve. It's uh, a filter of sorts, and the, the powder is sifted through a sieve, and the, the particles that are between, let's say, 5 and 10 microns, which is a measure, it's, it's like a very, very small uh, portion of a centimeter. It's, it's a thousandth of a meter, and so it's, uh, or maybe it's less than that. Anyway, it's, it's a very, very small particle size. And that's really a physical measurement. It doesn't have anything to do with the, with the chemistry. When we talk about bioidentical progesterone, that has to do with the chemical structure of progesterone. And there is bioidentical progesterone. And when people say micronized progesterone, they're really talking about bioidentical progesterone that happens to be a very small particle size called micronized. I don't want to get too much into the weeds with all of that, but Essentially, we do have available estradiol 
and progesterone, which are the two most commonly used bioidentical, chemically synthesized hormones that we use for menopause specifically. That's very helpful. And we do have to take our first break, but we received many emails and we have some callers that we will get to after the break. So you are listening to Line One, Your Health Connection. If you have a question or comment for our guest today, give us a call statewide at 1-888-353-5752, 1-888-353-5752, or in Anchorage at 907 907- Five five zero eight four three three. After this short break, we will continue our discussion on the myths and the facts of hormone replacement therapy with the hormone pharmacist Steve Goldring as Line One continues statewide. You're listening to Line One from Alaska Public Media. You can find Line One on alaskapublic.org or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're hurting in your relationship or have been affected by sexual violence, Strong Hearts Native Helpline is a free 24-7 confidential and anonymous domestic, dating, and sexual violence helpline for Alaska Natives. Help is available by calling or texting 1-844-7-NATIVE or using the chat icon at strongheartshelpline.org. This message is sponsored by the Strong Hearts Native Helpline. Welcome back to Line One, Your Health Connection on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Dr. Jillian Woodruff. I'm joined by guest, Mr. Steve Goldring. He is a licensed compounding pharmacy pharmacist who is known as the hormone pharmacist. We are talking about hormone optimization in the controversial 2002 Women's Health Initiative study that negatively, somewhat negatively, impacted the landscape of hormone replacement. Do you have questions about the effects that menopause and hormone decline can have on your life? Give us a call, toll-free, statewide, at 1-888-353-5752, 1-888-353-5752, in Anchorage at 907-550-8433, 907-550-8433, or email us at line1 at alaskapublic.org. So now, Steve, I want to get into some of the common myths about hormone replacement, and I think it's best if we just go to some of the questions that we have. Okay. So the first email we have is from Christina. She wants to know about guidance for women who suffer from blood clots and are trying to manage menopause symptoms with hormones. That's a very common question. I've actually had that in the the past few days from some of my uh, YouTube video uh, listeners. Um, So there is some evidence that some types of hormone replacement therapy, specifically certain types of estrogens and possibly medroxyprogesterone, which was used in the Women's Health Initiative, might increase the risk of blood clotting. And this is especially true in situations where a woman has a history of deep venous 
thrombosis or DVT, and also pulmonary embolism or PE. Uh, those are those are two very serious blood clotting issues that actually can be life threatening, and so it's it's a very serious concern to to watch out for. Now there there basically is uh, it's very common that uh, providers, doctors, and nurse practitioners will use what's called a transdermal version of estradiol that is shown to have a have no impact on blood clotting, um, as opposed to an oral version of estradiol. Now, there is a little bit of controversy. I actually had a physician in Florida who, who is, is among the group of providers that I work with, and there's some controversy in the group that this provider works with that, um, not, that there's not a lot of evidence that estradiol really causes blood clots, but it's really more about the medroxyprogesterone that causes the blood clots. So the jury's kind of still out on that. But just to be safe, a lot of doctors will use primarily transdermal estradiol, especially in patients who have a history of blood clots or if they have a particular genetic, there's a, a genetic predisposition called factor five Leiden and a few others that make people more likely to develop blood clotting issues. And so um, a lot of providers will just to be safe, keep patients on the, F, the uh, transdermal form style, which would be a cream that's applied to the skin or uh, often a patch applied to the skin rather than an oral form of estradiol. Thank you. That's really helpful. I have another question from Nikki via an email. Nikki took estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone at age 39 for low levels and symptoms she was having. Shortly thereafter, her hair started falling out, and so she stopped taking them. But she still has very low levels and she may be entering perimenopause at age 42. Was she wrong to stop the hormones? Well, that's a, a bit of a complex question, and there, there would be a number of things that a, that a qualified provider would really want to look at. So when someone says their hair falls out, there are a couple of different hormonal aspects. Probably the two that would hit me first would be to look at thyroid issues. And so she didn't mention any thyroid specifically, but a lot of times thyroid or low thyroid levels can be involved in the loss of your hair. Now, the second thing to look at is the testosterone. Testosterone is converted uh, from testosterone in your body to something called dihydrotestosterone. Now, dihydrotestosterone is a two-edged sword. It has a good side, which is that it increases our sex drive and it helps us feel a little bit more frisky in the bedroom um, for both men and women. Now, the downside to dihydrotestosterone is that it also tends to cause uh, male pattern baldness or hair loss. Um, I, I kind of have experienced a little bit of that myself because I do take testosterone, not dramatically. So it, it would probably be important for a provider to look at both of those things. Now, it's also certainly possible there could be other things going on in addition to those hormones. But um, the first two places to look would be at the thyroid and then the dihydrotestosterone, which would be a, a metabolite or a breakdown product of testosterone, if that makes sense. 
Yes, absolutely. So she really needs to get with a hormone provider to have those levels checked. And there are also some other medications that you can do that can help, you know, to decrease that rate of hair loss or prevent it. Uh, And then, like Mr. Steve said, it's looking at your thyroid and other hormones that can also influence hair loss. Well, we have a caller. We have Jill from Fairbanks. Jill, welcome to Line 1. What question do you have for us? Thank you. A little history background. I had to have a complete hysterectomy when um, I was in my early 40s. I had a tumor in my uterus that was filled with cancer. The cancer hadn't spread. They took um, complete hysterectomy and, um, and also my glands, any surrounding glands. And um, I've been totally, so that was 20 years ago. And um, I was on hormone replacement Primarin for a long time, but then about Four or five years ago, my doctor was like, you can't be on these anymore. You're in your 60s and, um, you're gonna, you know, it's too dangerous. So consequently, I suffer from hot flashes every day, all, during the day, at night. Um, I tried giving up coffee. I tried giving up sugars and alcohols. Um, I'm an, a regular exerciser, and still I am plagued. And um, what can I do? <laughs> okay, thank you, Jill. That's a great question. Let's uh, go to Steve and see what can she do. She's past 60. She's continuing to have overt signs of menopause and probably some other signs of menopause she hasn't associated. So what's next for her? Is it too late? Uh, I'm, I'm so sorry that you've experienced that, Jill. That is a very sad story that I've heard from other women in, in a similar situation. In fact, I was on the phone with a woman in Canada, uh, I think two days ago, and she was talking about her provider told her that when she reaches 60 in about two years, she will have to go off hormones. And I find that to be incredibly sad and frustrating Yes. because in my uh, well-informed opinion, that is a misinterpretation of the Women's Health Initiative and the other data that's around. The idea that magically uh, that, that hormones are fine when you're 59 and a half and then when you on your 60th birthday or at some arbitrary point in time, all of a sudden hormones are bad for you. I just find that to be a a little, um, it doesn't really fit with what the data says. So here's what I'd recommend for Jill, and that is that you might want to seek a second opinion, someone who really understands menopause and hormone replacement and hormone optimization, and who understands that these hormones are probably, uh, the, the, the time when you should stop taking hormones is the time when you don't want to feel good anymore. Uh, those hormones are going to continue to be low and they're basically going to be zero for the rest of your life. And you're not going to probably continue to have hot flashes for the rest of your life. The evidence seems to indicate that those go away after seven to 10, maybe 12 years, which is a long time to wait. 
But there are also lots of other symptoms that are not going to go away, things like insomnia and irritability and mood swings and those types of things. So I, I would strongly recommend that you find a provider who can really help you to optimize your hormone levels and maybe not necessarily take the word of that one provider who wants to take you off of them. But I do, uh, I do empathize, and I'm so sorry that you've experienced those awful hot flashes and those awful menopause symptoms, but there is hope. There is hope that there are some providers, some doctors who can help you. Absolutely. And sadly, that does happen a lot. I get a lot of patients that have been taken off of their hormones, and shockingly, they're not feeling well, right? And so we definitely need to increase our education for for all of us, for all providers. And you can't expect, um, you know, one primary care provider to know the latest treatments and everything. And that's really what we expect from them. So I just uh, hope that we can all educate ourselves and then work together as a team to take care of people uh, like Jill. But Steve, I've got another question. This one came from Facebook, and it's similar to her question. Uh, This woman would like to know about HRT and the window of opportunity, specifically as it associates with bone loss. And if you don't start hormones within those first five years of menopause, is there any benefit to your bone loss starting it later? Uh, there, there actually is benefit starting later. The maximum benefit would be if you could start uh, estradiol specifically immediately after you go into menopause. That's going to protect your bones from loss. Your, uh, your bones can have a significant loss just in the first couple of years after going into menopause. And so it's really important to bring that estradiol level up and to make sure that you maintain as high as you can to prevent bone loss. And testosterone can also be a helpful hormone in that aspect because testosterone has an impact on bone health. Um, if you haven't, if you haven't had uh, estradiol in the early years in menopause and you start later, it can actually reverse osteopenia and then osteoporosis. It's uh, it's an up, uphill battle. And it, it's not always able to uh, increase bone density, but it can at very, at the least, it can slow down the bone loss, probably uh, more effectively than most osteoporosis medications can. Uh, in, in my informed opinion, estradiol is really the key to preventing bone loss. And it also can be the key to reversing bone loss, um, but it's, you're putting yourself at a, a disadvantage if you haven't had estradiol early in menopause. What if you took estradiol early in menopause and then stopped it? At that point, do you have that significant bone loss as though your body is now going through menopause five years later? Uh, yes, that, that is exactly going to happen. Um, and, and even horse estrogens will will serve to increase that, that bone density and decrease bone loss. So in, in the case of someone like Jill, who was taking Premarin and then she stopped, she is, is, is going to need to be concerned about her bone density over time because no matter which estrogen you take, they will help to, to prevent bone loss. And as soon as you stop taking them, 
that bone loss is going to begin. And it's only a matter of time before you basically, uh, your bones become much more uh, brittle and hollowed out and much more likely to break. Thank you. So definitely for especially women that have a family history of osteoporosis and you've seen this happen with your loved ones, this is something to think about as you are getting towards perimenopause or menopause, what are things that I can do to protect my health and my bones later on? Uh, Steve, we have another caller uh, this Uh, time. We have Marilyn from Anchorage. Marilyn, welcome to Line One. Thank you so much. And uh, Steve, I have a question for you. I I had a complete hysterectomy as a young woman. And my wonderful OBGYN doctor, who has since retired, placed me on hormone replacement, the Depo-Estradiol injection. And I have been on that now for 35 years. Uh, So since this retirement, I have seen several doctors afterwards who wanted to stop the injections and try me on these other different forms of hormone treatment. And some I did try, and others I was just not open to. And so one doctor really took it personally. And so overall, Steve, I find the injection works best for me. Um, So I'm not going to interrupt what works best for me. Uh, But one of the doctors that I've seen mentioned that the reason he wanted to take me off of the Desco-Extradile injection because it was associated to Alzheimer's. So I just want your thoughts on that. Thank you, Marilyn. That is a very good question, Marilyn. That, that's a very good question. I appreciate your asking it. Um, th- there is a bit of controversy about hormones and Alzheimer's disease. And some people believe that hormones increase Alzheimer's disease. Uh, the, the vast majority of the research, though, I believe, shows that optimal hormone levels over the course of your lifetime are actually beneficial in uh, maintaining your cognitive health, your, your memory for the long haul. Um, and and I'm, I actually am very concerned about Alzheimer's because of a, a family history that I have of Alzheimer's disease. And so I'm very, very interested in some of the work of Dr. David Perlmutter or Dr. Dale Bredesen or several other uh, researchers that have done a lot of work in the area of Alzheimer's prevention and even Alzheimer's reversal. And one of the key elements to that work is maintaining optimal hormone levels, including estradiol for women throughout life. Um, and so I think you wanting to maintain that depo estradiol, I think depo estradiol is a perfectly reasonable form of estradiol that is going to be effective for women. And it's apparently been effective for you. And so you go and you advocate for yourself to keep getting that as long as you possibly can. And I, I am firmly convinced that that will contribute to your long-term brain health. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. And I think a couple of the women have mentioned hysterectomies. And there, I know the way that we describe hysterectomies is quite different from how the gynecologist says total or partial hysterectomy and how patients see it. And so hysterectomy, there's hysterectomy removing of the uterus, total hysterectomy, the uterus and the the cervix. And then you can have your ovaries removed as well. And I think many people refer to a complete hysterectomy as having their their ovaries removed. 
although the gynecologist refers to that differently. So we understand when you have your ovaries removed, you're removing those hormones that are produced by the ovaries. So the estrogen, the progesterone, and, and testosterone is um, also produced there. What if you've re- you left the ovaries in place, but you removed the uterus? Will you still see some fluctuations of your hormone levels? Uh, there's many women that stay at that point that they started to experience perimenopause and menopausal symptoms after they've had their uterus and cervix only removed. Yeah, um, I haven't uh, delved into the the specifics of that particular question all that much, but it certainly is true that women who have had their uterus removed, there are going to be multiple issues around that, um, and that can certainly have an impact on the ovaries as well. And there are also multiple tissues in addition to the ovaries that produce hormones, and the uterus being one of those. And so anytime you, you remove a vital organ, there can be some, some implications in the long term. And those may not be apparent immediately, but in, in the case of a uterus, I think it, it might just take some time. Now, it's probably not going to be as dramatic for women as removing the ovaries, but um, it's I guess it depends on the specific situation. Right. And finally, before we take our break, I will just say I think you've answered this question that we received via email from Kirsten. Kirsten has been taking hormones for quite some time, and she's feeling really good. And her question was, how long can she continue to take hormones? And I believe you you kind of answered that when you said, as long as you want to feel good. Right. And, and, and I do have this question quite frequently. A lot of people, a lot of women are concerned about the concept of taking hormones for the rest of your life. And the reason is because, again, going back to the Women's Health Initiative, uh, and, and I've mentioned um, a misinterpretation of the Women's Health Initiative, leading a lot of doctors to say that uh, maybe age 60 or five years or less or some, some arbitrary time frame and that had to do with the fact that women, older women in the Women's Health Initiative had uh, more significant problems, especially cardiovascular problems, uh, things like heart attacks, than the younger women did. Well, ultimately, the, the issue in the Women's Health Initiative is it basically started with older women. And so the, the if, if you are able to look at the data in the Women's Health Initiative and only look at the younger women and look at women who took hormones all the way along, those women did not see any increased cardiovascular risk. It's the women who went without hormones for 10, 11, 12 years and then started up on hormones. Those are the women who may have run into some issues. But the evidence is pretty clear that if we put women on hormones early in menopause and we keep them on them for the rest of their lives, their risks for cardiovascular disease are actually much lower. And there are two specific studies that uh, bore that out. One's called the KEEP study, the Kronos Early Estrogen Prevention Study, and another's called the ELITE study, the Early versus Late Intervention Trial with Estradiol. And both of those showed that Estradiol specifically helped to decrease cardiovascular risk, 
especially when we use it early in menopause. Um, that doesn't mean that we need to stop women from taking it as they go through menopause. So I would say that that, that general idea is too arbitrary and it's, it's a misinterpretation of the study. Thank you. And I will say we do have to address this after the break that Kirsten also mentioned that she has been taking conjugated estrogens as well as the progesterone. So I'm going to let you think about how to respond to that. And let's take another short break for the stations down the line. If you have a question or comment for our guest today, give us a call statewide at 1-888-353-5752 or in Anchorage at 907-550-8433. We'll continue our discussion on menopausal hormone replacement with Mr. Steve Goldring when we return. You're listening to Line 1, Your Health Connection on Alaska Public Media. You're listening to Line 1 from Alaska Public Media. You can find Line 1 on alaskapublic.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to start accelerating your child's future through education? The Alaska Native Science and Engineering Program is expanding its reach with new opportunities in Juneau and Southeast Alaska. With ANSEP's Acceleration Academy, high school students can earn college credit, save thousands of dollars in college costs, and experience fun, hands-on learning. ANSEP. It's a better way to learn. Learn more and enroll at ansep.net slash acceleration. This message sponsored by ANSEP. Welcome back to Line One. I'm your host, Dr. Jillian Woodruff. Our guest today is Mr. Steve Goldring. He is a licensed compounding pharmacist with a certification in advanced hormone replacement therapy. He dedicates his time to making sure we are all informed about the hormone fluctuations and instabilities experienced by men and women throughout life through his online education program, Simple Hormones. You can join today's conversation with us. Do you have questions about the symptoms of menopause or hormone replacement therapy? Give us a call toll-free statewide at 1-888-353-5752, one 553 in Anchorage at 907-550-8433, or email us at line1 at alaskapublic.org. So Steve, what do you have to say about her uh, hormone replacement that she's on, the progesterone and the conjugated equine estrogens? Well, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to be critical of a healthcare provider, um, but what I would suggest is she might explore the option of getting switched to a more bioidentical form of those two hormones. So uh, what, what she's taking would be uh, conjugated equine estrogens. It's basically Premarin from pregnant mare's urine. And that is an effective estrogen. But as I mentioned earlier, it's kind of a dirty hormone. It's contaminated with a lot of other things that come from the urine of horses. And so the best would be just plain estradiol, which is a bioidentical form of estrogen. Um, and that would kind of eliminate all of those kind of possibly toxic ingredients. Now, Premarin has been around for 80 years. And so it's a very, very old drug. It's been used in basically millions of women over time. Um, but it, it is also the drug that it was used in the Women's Health Initiative, along with medroxyprogesterone, which is the other one that she mentioned. 
Now, medroxyprogesterone uh, has some effectiveness against menopause. There are several symptoms it doesn't help with. Uh, if you've had any issues with sleep, insomnia, depression, or anxiety, uh, medroxyprogesterone will not help those at all. And those are three symptoms that I hear about extremely frequently in women, especially in women who have had a hysterectomy because the, the general point of view among providers is, well, if you've had a hysterectomy, you've had your uterus removed, and you don't need progesterone. So they, they won't give progesterone. Uh, in, in this case, they're giving medroxyprogesterone as a way to protect the uterus. Um, but I'll back up a little bit. Basically, medroxyprogesterone doesn't solve a lot of the symptoms of menopause, especially insomnia, depression, and anxiety, where if you were to get your doctor to switch you to uh, bioidentical progesterone, that does help with insomnia. It helps women sleep a lot better. It also helps with depression and anxiety. So I, I hope that makes a little bit of sense. Yes, I think that was that was clear and helpful. Uh, we do have a caller for you. We have Carrie from Anchorage. Carrie, welcome to line one. Hi. Hi. I uh, wanted to ask about um, hormone receptive cancer, especially breast cancer, and um, and the recommendation is to stay away from all estrogen replacement if you're either at risk or have had a hormone receptive um, cancer and are prescribed uh, either aromatase or um, raloxifen estrogen blockers. Okay, that's that's a great question. We should talk about uh, breast cancer, because we mentioned we don't have this causal effect with bioidenticals. However, if a woman has had an estrogen or progesterone receptive breast cancer, what do we do for them? How do we help them with their symptoms? Yeah, that that is a really difficult question. And I have had people ask that question of me before. And th there's not an easy answer. Um, so I've I've read um, and, and I've seen a lot of information from a guy named Dr. Leon Spiroff, who is from Oregon Health Sciences University. He's actually written a very well-known uh, textbook about uh, gynecology and endocrinology. And he says that hormones don't cause cancer, they influence breast cancer. Um, and, and that particular situation where you have an estrogen-positive or progestin-positive breast cancer, that's a very, very tricky one. Um, it's not 100% uh, that you should never take uh, hormones, but it's going to be a very tricky, uh, that, that, that patient is going to be very tricky to treat. And in order to have hormones, you would have to be treated by someone who is A, extremely skilled, trained, and be very confident in what they're doing. Um, in general, I would say most, even hormone providers, are going are gonna to hesitate to treat a woman with that type of breast cancer uh, with hormone replacement therapy. But I'm, I'm also, uh, I, I've talked to some providers who are willing to do it. It's just tricky. Um, and it, it, that's a very, very good question, one without an easy answer. 
Right, absolutely. And even for those who are at risk for breast cancer, knowing which breast cancer you're at risk for and what your risk is, that's an important conversation to have. And perhaps not only just with the hormone specialist, but with even a a breast uh, surgeon or, or someone that is used to dealing with breast cancer so you can know what your exact risk is. And there's so many calculations to figure that out at this point. We do have so many questions we are not going to be able to get to today, but we're going to take one last caller, but we have about 30 seconds for Lisa from Anchorage. Hi, I'm uh, 61, went, finished, my, I've been out of, in menopause about eight years. I had a DEXA scan. I, according to my provider, don't have really bone loss, don't have uh, menopause symptoms. Is there any reason for me to take hormones? Excellent question. Steve? That is a good question. Um, bone loss is one factor, and you you apparently have escaped bone loss, which is unusual. But there are other uh, risk factors, especially type 2 diabetes, uh, insulin resistance, heart disease, and Alzheimer's, that you might want to consider as th- those are higher, those risks are higher if you don't have your hormones optimized. Thank you. So even if someone hasn't started hormones quickly after menopause and they want to start them later, that is a discussion that they can have and something that even if you're 65 and experiencing low libido or other things that there are still benefits. Absolutely. I actually had a conversation with somebody a few months ago who was turning 70. She was getting married and she wanted to increase her libido. And so she is uh, had her hormones optimized, and she feels fantastic. Um, but she has never had any hormones before age 70. There you go. There, It's never too late to want to optimize your health and, and prevent medical problems and just live your best life, right? That's what we are doing now. Well, thank you so much to our guest, Steve Goldring, the hormone pharmacist, for being with us today. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tobin Shelby, and our producer, Adeline Baxter. You can find more information on this and previous programs on our website at alaskapublic.org. Let us know your thoughts or suggestions by emailing us at line1 at alaskapublic.org. This has been Line 1, Your Health Connection. I'm your host, Dr. Jillian Woodruff. Thank you. Line One is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the hosts and participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Learn more about Line One and listen online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media.